0: hey guys we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in check back weekly to stay up to date with what god is doing here in the life of our church to learn more information you can find us online at sturkey.church our prayer here at the church at sturkey hills is that you are moved by this message guys thanks for tuning in and have a blessed week Good morning, kid. Okay, let's go with um, go to the Lord in prayer before we get started today. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, um, that we live in a place where we can come together, where we can freely share Your Word. God, um, I pray, God, that You would just be with each person in here right now, Lord. That You would just give them ears to hear Your Word, and I pray, God, that Your Word does not come from me, but it comes from Your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord God, we thank you so much for Your love. We thank you, Lord, that even in times of uncertainty, we know that You are certain. God, we love you and we just give you this time today. Amen. Okay, so the video that um I opened with right there is from Open Doors. Um I encourage you to just check them out. They do a lot of a lot of awesome stuff. Um They have lots of videos not just uh that was kind of more broad. I just want to give you guys a kind of a broad view of stuff, but they have videos that are more specific to um to just Individuals into individual stories. I showed one in youth a couple weeks ago, and um, it was about a guy who um, he was saved ten years ago. I think it was um, in an airport. Guy shared the gospel with him. He was from China. Guy shared the gospel with him in an airport, and he was saved. And uh, he's living out his faith even in the midst of the persecution in China. He lives in a high-rise building in China, like a lot of people do. And uh, one of his friends who was doing the same thing not too long ago was uh, arrested by the police officers and was beaten and told to stop doing it. But this guy, he's going um, to, to people in the building who don't have the gospel, and, and he's having dinner with them, just doing life with them, and he's taking every opportunity he has to share his faith with them. And there's so many stories like that amidst persecution in the world. In our small group, we've started praying for an unreached people group. Um, an unreached people group... Uh, means that less than 2% is what they would say is um, Christian or evangelical. So that's a lot of the world. A lot of the world falls into that category. Um, You can look on Joshua Project if you haven't heard of that Joshua Project. And uh, every day it gives a new people group around the world for you to pray for. I'm sorry, I'm messing with this thing. I probably should have taped it. In the first service, it was up here in my nose, so I think they heard me breathing the whole time. They told me to keep it down here below my mouth. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry if that happens, but, um, anyway, where was I? Oh, Joshua Project, yeah, an unreached people group. Um, when we have our, um, our prayer night that's gonna start at the end of this month, we're gonna get in the habit of doing that as a church, of praying for an unreached people group, of praying for those that are suffering around the world, and those who don't have the gospel, and those who don't know Christ right here in our backyard, so, um, when I watched that video, when I showed that video to the youth of the guy that I mentioned from China, one of the things that just came to my mind is, man, that guy exemplifies what it looks like to take up your cross. He exemplifies what it looks like to take up your cross, and we've cheapened that. We use that a lot. We say that. We read it in the Word, but it's like we have no idea what that really means here. We've, we've cheapened it to, I attend church most of the time, and I serve in some way. hey, that's good, right? You're doing better than most people if you're doing that. But I was listening to a sermon, and I'm going to, real quick, I want to give you four things, just real quick right now, uh, before we really dive into the message, um, that it looks like to take up your cross daily. And the first one is that you're dying with Christ. Dying with Christ. And and I'm not talking about a physical death right now. I'm talking about figuratively. Okay, so um, when Jesus died on the cross, Romans 6 says that that he took all the sin and shame, all the stuff that weighs us down, he took it to the cross with him. He died to sin, even though he knew no sin. So that's our sin. So if we've been born again, if we've received Christ as Savior, then all of your sin, all the stuff that weighs you down, it's been nailed to that cross with him. If we've been made alive in Christ, then we also must die to sin, and sin can no longer rule over us. So first one, dying with Christ. The second one is that we are forgiven by grace. So um, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, but really two ways to heaven, right? One of them is 0% success rate. Because of what happened in the garden, sin entered the world. But perfection, right, if there was perfection and there was only one who was perfect, Christ, then we stand right before God, but there is no perfection. So it's a 0% success rate for someone to be saved by and of themselves, by perfection. But the other is that we're forgiven by grace. Forgiven by grace, how? Through faith. And that's a 100% success rate. 100% success. Okay. All right. I'm getting text stuff. Sorry. Um, Okay, so 100% success if we're saved by grace through faith. So first is dying with Christ. Second is we're forgiven by grace. And the third is um, that we say goodbye to our old godless life. And this is a choice that we make every single day. See, Galatians 5.16 says, I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Every single day, if you've received that Spirit, the Spirit of God lives within you. You make that choice to say, no, I don't need to do that. I don't need that in my life. I don't need that old godless life because I have a new life in Christ. So dying with Christ, forgiven by grace, we say goodbye to our old godless life. And then the fourth one, and one of the reasons that I showed this video to start with is because the fourth one is you might actually die. And that seems really, really odd to say to people here in a church in America where we can freely come and we can worship, but it's all too real for a lot of people it's, it's times like a, a crisis right now that's going on that our mortality becomes more real to us, I think, um, b- because we just don't see that kind of thing that much. But I don't want us at the same time to put our heads in the sand to what's going on to other believers, brothers and sisters around the world all the time, even here when we have political unrest, we have economic stuff going on, the economy's tanking, all that, And then we have the coronavirus. We have a disease. We have stuff that's just we don't see, we're not used to. Let's not forget how free we are, physically free, to be bold and courageous and be able to take our faith and share that with others, because that simply is not the case for a lot of people. Up here on the video, it said 260 million people, 260 million people live in real persecution. They face persecution. 260 million Christians, and that, that's used loosely. That's someone on a survey that would say, yeah, I identify as a Christian. But that's one in eight people who identify as Christian that is facing persecution. In Nigeria, if you guys get on Open Doors, you'll see a lot of stuff about Nigeria lately. Two million people driven from their homes. A lot of them Christian, been driven from their homes by extremists. You'll see this stuff um, You'll see the killings. You'll see the people who are taken uh, and being imprisoned. In Asia, one in three face some sort of persecution or repression every single day. And then this one was surprising to me. In Western Europe, so now even making its way to the West, in the country of France, two Christian churches every single day are desecrated. Two churches in France every single day. So the four things... That it looks like to take up your cross, dying with Christ, we're forgiven by grace, we say goodbye to the old godless lifestyle, and then you might actually die. Today we're going to look at someone who before this idea of dying, to, dying with Christ, this idea of picking up our cross daily was presented in the New Testament. He was doing it. He was actively doing it. And that's somebody is John the Baptist who came before Christ, right? And we're going to look at later. He says he was before, that Christ was actually before him. So um, we're going to look at John the Baptist today. John the Baptist was a popular guy. He was a popular guy in his day. People were going out from Jerusalem to see him. Um, he's a guy that's out in the wilderness, and he was getting a lot of attention, a lot more attention than Jesus was getting at first. A lot more attention than Jesus was getting at first. He was the center of attention. People are going out saying, what are you doing? And he's not even doing a lot of miracles. They're going out and he's telling them, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. And people are flocking to him. So I was doing this, a a message similar to this with the youth not too long ago. And I asked them, and I had a couple of them raise their hands. I doubt I'm going to have any of you raise your hand because nobody wants to admit this. But who likes being the center of attention? Nobody. Oscar does? Okay. (laughs) Okay. We're <laughs> on at Gene. Yeah. So, I, I'll admit that that I do sometimes. I like being the center of attention. When um when I was in high school playing sports, playing basketball, I, I was a big fish in a small pond, and I was the center of attention. I like doing interviews. I like people bragging on me. I like people praising me and telling me how good I was doing. I loved all of that. I ate that up. And then I left, and I went to college, and I, I went to Austin P. and I went from being a big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a big pond to the point that there's a 5'7 cross-country runner that told me, you're the worst scholarship basketball player I've ever seen. And he said, man, I could beat you, I could beat you. He couldn't. But anyway, I went for people praising me and getting interviewed and saying, man, yeah, you're so good, and I love that. Eat that up, because of my pride, because of my selfishness, to someone Telling me, man, you're awful. So um, I enjoyed being the center of attention at times. When I I transferred to Cumberland um, in Williamsburg, one of my friends who I lived with, he was the center of attention all the time, no matter what we were doing. I got a picture of him. I got a picture of him here. He's in my wedding. He's the one all all the way on this side. His name's Tanner. So Tanner's a head taller than everybody. He's a good-looking guy, but he's also a funny guy. So if we're out... If we're just in the cafeteria, if we're out with friends on a Friday night, whatever we're doing, he's kind of the center of attention. He's making jokes. He's saying things about himself. People are laughing at him. It didn't really matter who was there. So maybe you don't like being the center of attention. i got another picture too, I think. There we go. So he's a lot bigger than I am. I just want to put that picture up there so you can see. He's a big dude. He's a big dude. Um, So maybe you don't like being the center of attention. Who likes it, though, when people speak positively of you? Who likes it? Amen, raise your hand. You like it when people say good things about you. Anybody in here wanna say they like it when people say bad things about them? Probably not, probably not, that would be weird. Um, We had, last week in small group, we did a thing where we we talked about what our spiritual gift was and uh, why we thought that was our spiritual gift and then afterwards, we had a chance for the other people in the room to say, I see that you really excel in this. Or I think that um, I see this, gift, this gifting in you. After everybody left, uh, Kelsey and I were in the kitchen doing the dishes. And y'all might not believe this, but I actually do the dishes at our house. That's one of my chores that I, I take on to try and get out of doing other things like folding laundry. So <laughs> I actually do the dishes. But uh, we're, we're in the kitchen talking to each other. and she said, And Kelsey talked before me. When she said what her spiritual gift was, I was the one after her. She said, man, I could not wait for it to move on to you. That was so uncomfortable for me, everyone telling me what, I, what they thought I was good at. And I'm thinking like, man, I liked it when I was on me and everybody was telling me what they thought I was good at. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe that shows a problem with my heart, with my pride and her humility and just not liking it when people are saying good things about her. Sometimes it might be awkward when someone is saying good things about you. Someone's talking well about you. Um, but p- people that, that do like that, that like it when people say nice things about them. I think about, um, I think about a person at, at the office that is... Um, Just killing it, the best one, and then someone comes in and they're a new person and they start taking all your shine, all your glory, and the boss is praising that person. It can happen in school, in athletics, a new person, a foreign exchange student like Manny comes over to Halls High School and he's all of a sudden the best golfer. If I was a golfer there, I might kind of look at him with some envy, with some jealousy that he's coming in, taking all the glory. We see this in the story of the prodigal son. When we look at the story of the prodigal son, we always talk about the father who invited the son home with forgiveness, with open arms. And we talk about the son who had squandered everything away, who just totally blew it all, and um, the forgiveness that was offered to him. Who we don't look at a lot of the time is the other brother. The other brother that was at home, that was the center of attention. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing. We don't focus on him a lot. His, his um, reaction to the way his brother was treated was to have a little bit of a pity party, right? It was to have a little bit of a pity party. Um, he says, you never threw a party for me and my friends. You never killed the fatted calf for me. What's up with that? In Luke fourteen eight through 10, Jesus gives us an example here of the humility that we should have. He's trying to give us a warning. He doesn't want us to embarrass ourselves. Starting in verse 8, it says, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor. lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then he will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, "Friend, move up higher." Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. You ever been around that guy? It's like, yeah, I was pretty good at uh, I was pretty good at basketball back in my day. Um, I was fast, I could jump high. Yeah, I think I could play in this league with you. And then you go out there with him, and it's like, there's no way this guy ever played. Don't be that guy. Be the guy that says, "No, I'm not very good. I'm not any good." You've been around this person too. I'm terrible. And then they come out there and they're just killing it. They're just killing it. Take that attitude of humility. So, we're going to look at John. We're going to go back in John chapter 3. Joel's been ahead a little bit in John, but we're going to go back in John chapter 3 and pick up in verses 22 through 30 to look at John the Baptist. Starting in verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John, was, um, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put into prison. So this brings us to the first point. First point is the problem. The problem. And I say that with quotation marks because we're going to find out it's not really much of a problem. It's actually exactly what should be happening. Exactly what should be happening. So it says, after these things in verse 22, what are we talking about? What things? To go back in John 3, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. He's picked up some followers. He's been in the temple teaching a little bit. Um, we've seen him share the gospel with Nicodemus, tell Nicodemus what you must do to be saved. We've seen the popular John 3, 16 verse. We've seen the light and the darkness. And now we see that John and Jesus, they've got this ministry they overlaps for a little bit before John's put into prison. It says they have their ministries overlapping. So Jesus and his disciples they're baptizing. John and his disciples they're baptizing. They're both in Samaria. They're both preaching a message of repentance. And Matthew four seventeen it says from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So they're preaching a similar message. They're bringing a similar message to the people. One thing that's a little bit different here that I want to point out before we go forward is Jesus was not actually doing the baptizing, okay? We see in John 4, 1 1 and 2, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, then it says, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples So why would Jesus not be baptizing? Why only his disciples baptizing? Can you imagine the pride that someone would have if it was Jesus that actually baptized them? You know, Jesus baptized me. John just baptized you. One of the disciples just baptized you. So Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptizing. Um, Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 1, 14, 15. Even himself, people bragging that Paul baptized them. So imagine Jesus. But Paul says, I thank God. That I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. So Jesus isn't doing the baptizing. All right, let's pick back up verse 25, chapter 3. We're going to see the problem here, or the, the argument, the disagreement, the dilemma. We see in verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all is going to him. All are going to him. Okay, so right here we see that there's an issue over purification. So what are they talking about exactly? Exactly. This is baptism of repentance. We know that baptism cannot save, does not save, but the issue that they're arguing over right here is baptism. And we're not told exactly what they say, but we can tell by the context clues that there has to be some of uh, which baptism is greater, who is greater, which disciples are given the real baptism. Why did that person get baptized by John's disciples, and now they're going to Jesus' disciples to get baptized? So there's, there's this dispute with this Jewish person. What we see here is Jesus' popularity is increasing, he's becoming greater, and John is fading into the shadows. They say in 26 that everybody's going to Jesus. What's going on? He's already, even some of his disciples, his own disciples have already gone to him. So how could John respond to this? How could John respond to this? The human response could look a lot like jealousy, envy, gossip, and anger. Somebody ever come, and they're doing good at something, and your initial, your human, your flesh response is to say something poorly about that person to somebody else because they're kind of taking your glory or doing something that you were doing good, and they're doing it better. First, I just want to point this out. I wrote this down. Nothing is more destructive to humanity than pride. Pride is a cancer to the human soul. Pride kicks Satan out of heaven, Adam out of the garden, and King Saul out of his kingdom. Pride destroys relationships, friendships, Marriages, families, works, ministries, and churches. So what if a different church opened down the road where the Methodist church used to be there, and we've been up here doing what we're doing, we're growing, and then all of a sudden this new church comes in and just starts killing it. There's people there being saved, being baptized. We're even losing some people to them. Can we honestly say that we'd sit here and just rejoice in that? Man, that is awesome what God is doing in that church. Or maybe might there be a little bit of jealousy on our end when we've been sitting here working and trying to do the same thing. And we've got a building going up and everything that people are going and flocking to this new church. I know that Jesus says that John's the greatest ever born of a woman, right? But there's got to be some temptation here for him to be somewhat envious of Jesus from his flesh side. I mean, yeah, it's Jesus, it's God, he knows who he is, but there's gotta be some temptation of that, he's still human. Jesus is starting to take all the attention away from John, so there's a problem here, it looks like on the surface. To his disciples, it looks like a problem. They don't, they're not sure what they're supposed to do about it. But how does John respond to this situation? How does he respond to the problem? We see how he responds because of his view of a few things. John doesn't respond how I think a lot of us would respond, and that's because of his view of some really important things. So number two on your worship guide, John has a proper view of God. John has a proper view of God. Let's look at what John's view of God is and what his view of Christ is. We'll look in John 1, 26 through 30. John 1, through 30. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John has a proper view of God. He knows who Jesus is. He has a proper theology. He understands that the one who is coming after him, Jesus, was actually before him. He understands who Jesus was. Yeah, later on he he has his disciples go and question, like to make sure he was the one that was coming. Even he failed but he had the proper view of who God was. He understood that his sandals, he was not even worthy to stoop down and untie. He had the highest view of God, the highest view of who Jesus was. He understood that he was the Lamb of God that was going to take away the sin of the world, that it wasn't him, but that it was Jesus who had come, God incarnate, who was going to take away the sin of the world. That's why he says in verse 27, when he's asked, asked, sorry, asked about it, it says John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So he understood these people go into Jesus. It is they are being given over to Jesus, and that is what is supposed to happen. It has been given to to him from heaven. If we have a high view of God the way that John did, what falls into place is our view of everything else in life. And that leads to the next point, number three, is that he had a proper view of himself, of self. You have a proper view of self. Do You have a proper view of yourself. He knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't. In Matthew 3, 1 through 6, who was John? Let's look at who John was for a second. Matthew 3, 1 through 6, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So he understood who he was, that he was the one crying out in the wilderness. He even says that himself in John 1, 22 and 23. It says that they come to him, they're wondering, who is this guy that's baptizing? And they say to him in verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he understood that he was not the Christ. He even understood that Jesus, who said that he was the greatest born of a woman, that even he was least in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Luke 7, 28 says. I tell you, among those born of a woman, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he understood that. He was following God. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. But he had such a high view of God and such a small view of himself. The person who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven was greater than John. He knew that he was not Christ. He makes this abundantly clear throughout the gospel. So he knew who he wasn't. But he wanted to point all attention to Jesus. John was like the herald. The herald that comes in and announces that the king is coming. And that day, if a king came in, a herald would come before and announce to everyone that the king was on the way. So John knew that the king was coming, and he was the one there to announce it. When the king is there, the herald doesn't stand in the room still in the middle of everyone and continue to say, hey, but but some of you guys still stay here with me, listen to me. I got some more stuff to tell you about. No, the king is coming, and the king is here, and he is happy that the king is here. And that's why in verses 28 and 29, when he continues on with his response, he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And then he says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus is the bridegroom, and John, at best, he's simply the best man at a wedding. He's a groomsman. In ancient times, in those times, the best man had a really important role in the wedding, way more important than just holding a ring box and handing it to the groom to give to the bride. In fact, the bridegroom in those days actually had to get the place that they were going to get married at, that he was going to marry his bride, ready. Can you imagine that now? Can you imagine if it was the groom's job and the best man's job to prepare the wedding? There's no way anybody's letting anybody do that, right? Um... (laughs) My, uh, I mean, my wife and, and Kendra, um, they got everything ready for my wedding. I couldn't even show up on time to the rehearsal. I mean, I was an hour late for the rehearsal. Kendra almost didn't let the wedding happen because of that. We're, we, were, uh, we got married in South Carolina, and um, we were on the beach probably 45 minutes away. Me and my groomsmen staying in this place, and, and uh, I was working at a bank at the time, and had been locked up the whole winter, hadn't seen the sunlight, and we decided to go out on the beach and just play football, get in the water, just have fun. So we're out on the beach, and the wind's blowing hard, and I don't know if you've ever been on the beach when the wind's blowing hard or been on a cruise ship when it's moving. You you don't feel like you're getting sun. So I put sunscreen on at the beginning of the day, but um, by the end of the day, that sunscreen wasn't doing anything for me. So I get back, and I'm getting a shower to get ready to go to uh, the rehearsal which is about a 45-minute drive and I start realizing, man, whoa, I got a lot more sun today than what I thought I got. I got so much sun that it was just total sun poisoning. It was miserable. It was miserable. So at one point, we're driving and it's traffic now. We're late. I keep looking at the time. It's later. Kelsey's calling me, where are you guys? Maybe she thinks I'm belling on her. I don't know. And so (laughs) at one point, Um, I see a gas station up ahead, so you see a guy in a suit just walking down the road through traffic to go get a Red Bull at a gas station because I couldn't sit in that car anymore in the heat and how hot the suit was on me. There was no way that I could have possibly done anything to prepare the wedding. It was everything that I could do to get to the wedding. And my brother, who would have been the one that was the best man to help me, probably wouldn't have been much help either. So John, though, he is the best man. He is the one who is to prepare the way. He's the one to point the bride to the bridegroom. Another thing that it says is that John rejoices at the voice of the bridegroom. He rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. He's just happy that he knows The bridegroom. He's happy to have some kind of a part in this. He is thrilled to play some kind of a part in pointing the bride to the bridegroom. The friend that I showed earlier, Tanner, on my wedding day, he started calling me groomzilla. So instead of bridezilla, he's calling me groomzilla because I was complaining so much the whole day about my sunburn. And so uh, I can't imagine anyone rejoicing at my voice, but John, he just rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. In this case, the bride is the church, and it's turning to her husband, Jesus. How terrible would it be, how silly would it be, if the friend of the bridegroom tried to steal the attention back, if the friend of the bridegroom stood up and wanted to be the center of attention at a wedding? I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding where the best man is the one that's getting all the attention, but I think you would remember that. That'd be pretty awkward. That'd be pretty weird, right? So what's happening is they're hearing the voice of the good shepherd. In John 10, 27 It says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And then finally, we saw at the end of verse 29, it said that John's joy was made complete. His joy was made complete not in him getting any attention, but in pointing the attention to Jesus. His joy was made complete when people turned to Jesus. We look for happiness in so many places in our lives, right? Right? Um, but John, he finds the real lasting joy in pointing people to the only one who could really save. And he understood that. And that's why his joy came from that. He was happy that he got to play some sort of a role in that. Um, John MacArthur had a quote in a sermon that I was listening to. And he said that John understood that a great ministry doesn't produce disciples of the minister, but it produces disciples of the Savior. Our joy, too, can only be made complete in Christ. It's made complete. If you've ever shared the gospel with someone and you've seen that person come to Christ and start to follow in obedience, nothing makes you happier. Nothing makes you happier. Nothing brings you joy like that. There's no way you can do anything in yourself to feel that kind of joy. In John four thirteen and 14, um, a message that Joel did, A couple months ago, the woman at the well, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, starting in verse 13, it says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We keep drinking from things that are never going to satisfy, whether it's relationships or acceptance or a career, being the best in your class, doing well in sports, it might satisfy for a second, but it's never going to make your joy complete the way John's joy was made complete. And because he had a proper view of God and because he had a proper view of himself, who he was and who he was not, it leads to the last point, and the last point is he had a proper view of life. He understood what his life was about, what he was to do, the sacrifice that he was to make. In verse 30, a popular verse, we see it on bumper stickers, we see it on tattoos. It's an awesome verse, but it goes against everything that the world teaches us. Everything the world teaches us is not found in this verse. But it says, he must increase but I must decrease. We see even with um, John the Apostle and James the mother when she comes to Jesus and wants him to sit at his right hand and at his left hand, and the response that Jesus gives is, if you want to be first in the kingdom of heaven, you must become a servant. It's totally opposite of what the world teaches. We've learned that it's a person that has the highest salary that's to be most, expect- most respected. The boss is supposed to be thought of the most highly. We strive to climb a ladder, and then more recently, I know that you older people look at the millennials and Generation Z and say, Yep, that's them. That we're told, Do what makes you happy, be who you want to be. That's the message that's been given, rather than to lay down yourself and let Christ be made greater in your life, and you must decrease. So either something's wrong with John the Baptist or something's wrong with the world. I would go with the ladder since Jesus said that John was the greatest ever born of ever born of a woman in mark 8:35 through 37 it says whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul john he's perfectly content of falling into the shadows and pointing others to christ he's happy to be a servant. He's happy to be a servant. We see Paul describe it this way when he tells us to have the mindset like Christ. In Philippians 2, he says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." He says, "...let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, finally, the last scripture that I want to share is Galatians 6.14. It says to boast in Christ. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and out of the Lord, Is that you? Has everything else been crucified to you? All the stuff that you were living for, all the junk that was in your life, have you put that to bed? Have you been crucified to that? And the thing that you are living for and the thing that brings you that joy, that satisfaction, is the cross of Christ and making his name known. There was a missionary to India named uh, William Carey in the late 1700s and early 1800s. He's called the Father of uh, modern missions, actually. And an essay that he did actually led to the founding of the Baptist Missionary Society. So he's a guy that I would look at and say, man, he had a huge impact. He was pretty important. He lived for 41 years in India doing missions and sharing the gospel with people. And this is a quote that he said. He said, when I'm gone, don't talk of William Carey. Talk of William Carey's Savior. I want to make sure that he alone is the one who is glorified. What if every single person in this church, what if people who claimed Christ, people claimed they were Christians, had this attitude of service? What if every single person was committing to serving others? How different would our gatherings look? How different would it look to the outside world? A lot of times, the outside world and what we're doing here, it, it kind of it gets mixed together, right? We, we, we respect the, the boss the most, so we respect Joel the most. It's great to have respect for him, right? But... It kind of starts to get blurry. Where's the line? And we have to be in the world, right? We have to be sharing the gospel, leading others to Christ. But when they come and when they're around, people who claim to know Christ it should look like a bunch of people who are there to serve. A bunch of people who have died to themselves, who are putting others before themselves because they know Jesus. What if the majority isn't just showing up to be fed, but to feed others and to pour into others? We're so concerned in our lives with making a name for ourselves, whether it be a high school student, like I mentioned myself earlier, wanting to do the interview, or whether it be someone in their career, wanting to rise in their career, just wanting to make a name for yourself. What if everyone was more concerned with making the name of Jesus known the way that John was? And when, and when his name was known, he didn't care anymore. His joy was made complete. He said in verse 330 that he must increase, but I must, must decrease I want to close with the gospel. Um, If you haven't received that gift of grace that you receive through faith, if you've never been born again, if it just doesn't make any sense to you, then there's no way you could ever accurately make that statement that John made. John made that statement that he must increase, but I must decrease. If you don't have Christ, if the Spirit of God does not fill you, you can't make that statement and it ever be true because you're always going to pick the things of your flesh if you haven't been born of the Spirit. But Jesus, he's made a way. He's made a way the only way. He came, his blood was shed on a cross. And when we come to the point in our lives that we understand that we cannot in any way earn that grace on our own and we humble ourselves with a contrite heart and contrite spirit and repent of our sins and call on his name and ask for help, we will be saved. For those of you, those of you who have been saved, those of you um, who are, are trying to live for Christ, have your joy like John's. Be complete in him, in making his name known, in pointing others to him. That's our calling. Jesus, he came to seek and save those who are lost. And if you've been saved, if you're not lost anymore, then your job now is to be part of that calling to make his name known. How awesome is that, that we get to be a part of that? That he would allow us, fallen humanity, to be a part of his plan to lead people To him. If you'll bow your head, close your eyes. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord God, I thank you for this day. And I pray, Lord, that if there's one in here today that does not know you, that doesn't know what it means to be found in you, that doesn't quite get what it means that you took all their sin on the cross, pray, Lord, that you would just open their eyes, that you would help them to come to you, Lord, with a humble and contrite heart and confess that they are sinners that cannot do it on their own. I pray, Lord God, that you would just help them to see who you are, Jesus, that you are the God of the universe who came, who lived a perfect life, and who died on the cross for their sins, Lord help them to believe this Lord help them to confess this to confess that you died for them and that you were buried and that you rose again and believe that you were coming back Lord God, I pray for those in here that are saved. I pray, Lord, that they would take your message of grace and mercy and kindness to a lost and dying world around them. I pray, Lord, that we would not bury our heads in the sand to those brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution and those, Lord, who you have planned for us to go to that do not know you. Lord God, let us be the hands and feet of Jesus right here in this community and all around the world. Thank you, God, for allowing us that opportunity. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we love you. And Lord God, we thank you that we can freely meet once again, Lord, and just hear your word. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, that fills this place. Lord God, I I wanna just lift up a special prayer, Lord, for those who are hurting, those who are sick. Lord, there's confusion. There's so much stuff going on in our communities and all around the world, God. And I pray, Lord, that in the midst of all of that, that there would be a way, Lord, that you would find a way for people who are your children to reach others with this good news. I pray, Lord, that that people, Lord, who feel like they have no hope, that they would find hope in this gospel message, Lord. Lord God, we love you and we thank you so much. We give you glory, we give you honor, we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name, amen.